but he says, we need an absolute scripture. And I say, if you set that up as a standard, if you're saying that's what Jesus himself is saying, you'd better be able to deliver. As a text critic, I am not, I'm not strong enough to mess up God's word. What we want to aim for in textual confidence is bringing both of those together and say, I'm committed to the fact that God's never wrong when he speaks. So what he says in his word has to match up with what he says in his world. We want people to be satisfied with what God gives as God's plans, his ways are better than our ways, even when we wish he would do something different. You are listening to the Textual Confidence Collective. So in the last discussion that we had, brothers, we talked about the history and spectrum of textual absolutism. And I think, I hope, we showed, demonstrated that textual absolutism was not the view of Erasmus. And even more importantly, for our purposes, was not the view of the King James translators. But that doesn't necessarily make it wrong. So let's talk about the theological claims of textual absolutism. Let's, in this discussion, really talk through the Bible passages and then try to develop a textual confidence perspective on the Bible passages that discuss preservation. Yeah, that, that's good, because what we've kind of done in the last session, Mark, we've traced this history of absolutism, but all of us in this room are willing to follow the Bible against anyone. So Absolutely. even if every one of those figures held a non-textually absolutist framework, but we said the Bible teaches absolutism, all of us would be on board with it. And stand, I would stand against Erasmus. I would stand against the King James translators and every one of those other figures if the Bible taught it. So the question is, what's this core textual absolutist claim, and is it actually found in the text of Scripture? So why don't, you, why don't you give us that claim? Yeah, okay. What do you so think I, the claim think is? At its core, the, actual, the theological claim, at least, of textual absolutism is that textual trust demands textual perfection. You have to have a perfect copy of the text or a perfect translation of the text, or you don't really have a text that you can trust. And therefore, no toil is necessary to right. use Peter's. Right. Therefore, no toil is if necessary. If you have to toil, you can't trust. Right. right. Yeah. Right. Toil any, and any, trust are opposed. So, so trust and toil are opposed. And yep. that gets back to the, you know, it, where, you know, and Ehrman, Ehrman would say, if you have to toil, you can't trust. And therefore, I don't trust because I know I have to toil. And, and then, you know, the absolutist claim is, if you have to toil, you can't trust. But we trust, and therefore we should not have to do right. the foil on the text. Right. And we'd want to say, no, those two go together, and they must go together. Um, and and that's, that's how God works in his providence. Right. Or, or To me, whenever you write out toil and you say, if we have to toil, then we can't trust, that's putting the trust really in ourselves and not in God. Because it's, we can only trust to the extent that we can see it clearly. Or, or let's use terminology that I have actually heard my brothers in Christ within King James Onlyism use. Inspiration demands preservation. Right. So is that claim in Scripture? We want to look at the biblical text. If inspiration absolutely does demand preservation, I'm on board. And then we've got to ask the question, does preservation actually entail a textually absolutist view of a particular version or text of the Bible. So let's dig in then and kind of talk about these texts. There are a bunch of texts that get used a lot in this debate. Some of them have a very long history of being used as far back as like the Westminster Confession and their statement on preservation. Some of them are a little more recent in the, the debate, but there's four or five that come up all the time. Um, one of the first ones that comes up, one of the most commonly referred to and one of the most powerfully used is Psalms 12, 6, and 7. And uh, Mark, you had just written or delivered a paper about that. So if you want to maybe lead us off there talking about sure. that one. Why, thank you, Tim. 
Yes, I did give a paper. It's still in process. And actually what's left in process for me is trying to be rigorous in representing accurately the review, the views of people that I disagree with, especially in the various King James only worlds. And I'll make a little footnote there. You mentioned that the Westminster Confession of Faith um, has that, well, you didn't say this, but the famous phrase that the text has been kept pure in all ages. Uh, some of our listeners might be fascinated to know that there is a small group of Calvinistic King James onlyists who um, Presbyterians and Reformed Baptists who look back to the Westminster Confession or the the Baptistic version of it, the Credo Baptist version, the London Baptist Confession, and they have the same phrase kept pure in all ages, and they say that it applies to the TR and, and therefore ultimately to the, the King James. Um, so I'm really trying to listen. <clears throat> But as you said, this verse has not always been used. Uh, and in fact, Psalm 12, I believe it is verse 6, gets used in the Westminster Confession in their proof texts. But, and it's for the kept pure in all ages phrase. That's because Psalm 12, 6 says in the King James Version, I think I can go from memory, but I should probably look it up. It says um, the, uh, the words of the Lord are pure words. You know what? I'm going to pause. Okay. Thank you. Reading from my TBS Westminster Reference Bible, is that what I'm looking at that here? That is what you're looking at. Yes, uh, among the Down best editions. Oh, nice. Oh, yeah, this is good leather from a good Christian cow from Texas, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Who was given as a slain sacrifice. Yes, thank you so much. The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them. O Lord, thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. And it's really interesting here, and one of the tip-offs to sort of the interpretive question here comes in the note that is actually in the margin of the King James, even in this TBS edition, for that second them, thou shalt keep them, O Lord, thou shalt preserve them. And I'm convinced this is where the word preservation starts to get used by the King James only or textual absolutist movements. It says in the margins, the Hebrew is actually him. That is, every one of them. And if the Hebrew is actually him, that is, every one of them, then every one of them must not be the words, because words are not him and her. Words are things. Words are it. Therefore, it must be, in the view of the King James translators, that second pronoun must be pointing back to the antecedent that we find in verse 5, for the oppression of the poor for the sighing of the needy, now will I arise, saith the Lord. I will set him in safety from him that puffeth at him. So the words of the Lord here are not the Bible. They are these immediate words. I'm going to protect the poor uh, who are oppressed. And those words, yes, they've been purified seven times, but the they're not going to be kept. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them is most likely pointing back to the poor. Now, let me get uh, careful with this because when I first entered the writing of this paper, I mean, I was committed to finding out the truth of, you know, what can we say regarding this passage? I expected to find that nearly all interpreters would point the to thems or more literally them and him, the two pronouns in verse seven, back to the antecedent of the poor. And now I did find that overwhelmingly throughout the history of the church, all the interpreters that I could find, and I looked at like 60 something from different ages, the great, great majority of them, I, I can't remember the number right now, but in the 50s said that those two pronouns uh, pointed back to the poor. There are and have been 
several interpreters over time and responsible ones that I respect, including up to the minute, Jim Hamilton, who I know personally and wrote a Psalms commentary for Lexham Press, which is where I worked at the time when I started this paper, actually. And I work for a different department at Faith Life, but that's where I was then. He actually divides it. So thou shalt keep them refers back to the words, but thou shalt preserve him goes back to the poor. That's the antecedent there. And I'm willing to see that as legitimate view. And we don't do interpretation by plebiscite or a referendum, you know, just because everybody voted one way doesn't mean they're all right. But then again, if the Spirit's going to guide us into all truth, I'm expecting that people in the history of the church would, you know, largely be getting things like this right. And I could not find anybody who used Psalm 12, 7, and especially the second half of that, thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. I couldn't find anybody in the history of the church until King James onlyism. And I, I could be wrong there. I'm, I'm trying to find as many references as I can. I, I, I can't read everything there ever has been, but with Logos, I can read a whole lot of it. Uh, I can't find anybody who applied Psalm 12, 7b, thou shalt preserve them to textual preservation. And the great majority of interpreters took both of those pronouns to refer back to the poor. Now, what's really key here is, you know, the, our King James only brothers will say, well, there are places where the Hebrew pronoun can be, you know, can have a gender mismatch so that thou shalt preserve him actually could point back to the words. And I have to say, you know, there is some level of plausibility to that. I, I can't completely rule that out. But if nobody in the history of the church until King James onlyism, as best I can tell, has ever taken that interpretation, that makes me doubt their view. And if the King James translators themselves in the margin are saying that the Hebrew is him, and that means every one of them, and that can only mean the poor and not the words. There we have it again. The King James translators certainly did not take that view. That's my view of Psalm 12. Um, and then I want to say one more quick thing, and we're going to get here with other uh, uh, Bible verses that we're going to bring up. But even if this passage told me that there is a perfect text out there to be had, that God has preserved it, it does not tell me where it is right. or how to find it. And and I I was just wanting to jump on jump on that that even if it taught preservation like you said it doesn't tell you where to find it but it also doesn't tell you how God preserved right. it because I'd want to affirm textual I'd want to affirm preservation right. as it's found in in the in the Westminster Confession and the London Baptist Confession being a good Baptist that'd be what I what what I want to go for and I I'd be I'd be wanting to affirm that but that doesn't tell us what preservation it. That doesn't tell us what preservation looks like, right. because that's really what we're arguing about. Exactly. And and these passages say even if even if they're talking about preservation, which is doubtful, it doesn't tell us what preservation looks like. Right. And that's the key question that we've got to you know. And if if Psalm twelve six and seven are talking about perfect textual preservation, then we got a similar problem to the one you brought up, Elijah, where okay, but all of the manuscripts of any size in the Greek New Testament differ at least a little. Right. And if God is going to, if, if God said he's going to guard these words, what does that tell me? Well, that he didn't actually do it. And that is one of the reasons I don't take this interpretation of that passage. Elijah? Well, I wanted to stir the pot just a little bit and ask you, this is in half me stirring the pot and half me wanting your uh, opinion on this because I'm not an Old Testament person. It's not something that I have done much study in relative to New Testament. Um, this passage talks about purified seven times. And I'm just, if you're going to take it so clearly, you know, 
what happened if it, you know, did somebody find it when it was only purified six? Like, what, why did it need to be purified seven times? Right. Like, if it was right from the beginning, kept pure in all ages. And that actually does apply to current views because on the one hand, you'll hear King James Elias of various sorts finding a way to make the 1611 King James or the 1769 King James, which is actually the one that most people use in general, although there's actually been more revisions since then, minor ones, they'll find a way to make that the seventh, and therefore this is a promise of the seventh revision. And I, I find that, of course, to be special pleading, like how in the world can you make such a specific connection? And do you really expect me to believe that this verse is talking about the King James Version when if it's talking about God's preservation of his words, it has to be in the Hebrew and the Greek. The other thing there is that I have run into actually some of the most gifted of my brothers in the textual absolutist world who have tried to argue that, and in this case, not I'm thinking of one particular person, he didn't argue based on Psalm 12, 6, and 7, but he did say the same thing, that, well, of course, yes, there are differences in TR editions, and so we know that we can't say the TR is perfect. We talked about this a little more. We'll talk about it more later. Um, but it's okay that just like Christians go through a process of sanctification, the text of Scripture has gone through various levels of purification. And again, I'm thinking, brother, you really expect me to believe that's what the Bible is telling me or um, that I should really, I should, we should stop now? Like, yeah. why can't we say the Nesselalon 28 is the final purification? I can do that, some that, special counting to make that the seventh. Yeah. Uh, to, that, <laughs> It reminds me of the story, of, allegedly, it may or may not be true, but I've heard that when Charles Spurgeon would meet a Wesleyan perfectionist who, who claimed to have achieved a state of sinless perfection, he would stomp on their foot as hard as he could. Yeah, good old Spurgeon. That's you know, great. We don't, we don't get final sanctification in this life, if that's the case. Yeah, and, and, and if you want to believe that, like in a way, I want to say to that person the same thing you were saying, Elijah. If you want to read the King James the rest of your life and believe it, wonderful, praise God. But if you're going to divide the church and call my Bible corrupt over my failure to make what I think are some pretty big leaps, then I'm going to key my level of certainty to what the Bible is actually saying. And, and what got me into Bible teaching ministry was a pastor who had this overwhelming sense at all times that the Lord is listening to the sermon and has the right to tap you on the shoulder at the end and say, you know, that part where you said, thus saith the Lord, actually, I didn't say that. And when I went into those years and years of school that I went through and my learning is not done, my motivation was not just, I want to be like that guy, but the particular element of my pastor's character that I wanted to emulate was his sacred sense of even dread and fear, the, the fear of the Lord, of misrepresenting what God said in his word. I could not and would not stand before God's people and say that this passage says King James. And that, that just, just some, one part of, of my story that that reminds me of is that sense of you have to say, this is what God says. And really the dividing line for me came to be like, I'm called to ministry to, to teach, to preach as either as a pastor or professor or however that you know, looks over the course of life right now, I'm serving as a pastor and, and yet you're standing, you're standing before God's people and you have to tell them something. But if I were to stay in the circle I was grew up in, I was going to be required either to refrain from ministry altogether or to teach people things that I did not believe to be true. So I could just stay silent if I was going to be an engineer and I probably, you know, probably wouldn't have left that, that circle. But if I'm going to teach people, I can't teach what I believe to be false. It's more important for me as a herald 
You know, and this is why, so, you know, I was raised in fundamentalism, self-described fundamentalism. And after September 11th, that word is less popular even among fundamentalists to use. Um, but the whole appeal of the position is that we've got a titanium backbone and we're going to stand on the word of God no matter what. And let me say, I am a thousand percent glad that I was taught that in fundamentalism. And I uphold that against, unfortunately, the very pastors and teachers in some cases who taught me textual absolutism. I am standing on the Bible here. Matthew 5.18 is another passage, of course, that often gets used. And I will read it from the King James Bible. I could read it from the Greek New Testament like you were doing there, uh, Peter. But Matthew 5.18, of course, comes in the famous Sermon on the Mount, which I always like to say I read and read as a kid because it was the longest stretch of unbroken red letters in my red letter Bible. And I thought that was cool. I didn't even know I was reading the Sermon on the Mount. But that this sermon changed my life because I really listened to Jesus. I heard his call to discipleship. So thankful for it. These are some of the difficult verses. Psalm, uh, um, Psalm. Matthew 5, 17, think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. That is somewhat difficult. What does that precisely mean? And then he goes on in the same vein, for verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Once again, as Tim said earlier, if Jesus, my Lord, for whom I am not just disciple but slave, says to me, every single jot and tittle of my word has been preserved perfectly, then I bow myself before him and I trust and I obey. And there is a degree to which, so one of the King James Onlyists I respect is Chuck Surrett from Ambassador Baptist College. I just feel that there's a level of honesty and charity in him. Um, that I don't care to deny, that I actually rejoice in. I'm sad that we have to disagree over this topic. We will come to agree in heaven at least, hopefully sooner than that. But he has said, um, I know that I can't square what Jesus said with the evidence of, you know, from the manuscripts, but I'm going to go with Jesus rather than the evidence. There is a degree to which I understand and respect that view, and I am prepared to do the same thing. Why don't I do it with Matthew 5.18? I think I would like to hear from others too on this one. We, we didn't plan that. I was supposed to give this talk. But I think that a lot of the discussion here in textual absolutism, when you relate it to theology, that's what we're talking about, the theology of textual transmission, does go back to the question of the relationship between special revelation and general revelation. And we're accustomed to this when it comes to the creation-evolution debate. But that's an area where I myself am willing to say the, the special revelation of God is so clear in Genesis 1 that I cannot in good conscience moderate it somehow, make it fit with contemporary evolutionary schema, and I'm going to have to stick with what God says against, in some cases, uh, talk about you know things that make it difficult to believe. Well, starlight and time, that's a difficulty. I can't explain how some Stars are millions of light years away. I was just talking about this in evangelistic encounter with somebody. I was having to acknowledge. I can't explain that. I'm going to have to go with what God says. But ideally and ultimately, God's revelation in creation is going to cohere with his revelation in Scripture. And if it's possible for me to correlate the two on this earth, then I'm going to do so. And I think that in Matthew 5.18, I'm not, I, it's not just that I can do that, it's that I must do that. Because once again, if Jesus is promising perfect textual preservation, 
he has not told me how to find it. And that's not just an accidental omission. I take that to be quite purposeful. And if I can't have every jot and tittle, then some human somewhere is going to have to make a judgment as to what text, what textual variant are we going to translate for our Filipino Tagalog Bible or our Russian Bible or our English Bible. And I, yeah, and I think I think it's you know no, shall in no wise pass from the law. Right. Absolutely. Let's affirm that. But it doesn't tell us. You know. In fact, the, you know the, the verse says, "Forever, O Lord, that Thy word is settled in heaven." Like the law that God gave. Right. That right. this is this is what God gave. That doesn't mean that every copy of that law is going to get every jot and tittle right. Right. If, in that way, it, it doesn't follow at all. Um, you know, this sets up Christians for that fall that we talked right. about in earlier sessions. Because I cannot read this in, in any other way. If Jesus is talking about perfect textual preservation, it has to be perfect. Yep. If one tiny chain, in one tiny link in that huge chain is weak or snaps, the whole thing tumbles down and my faith goes with it. And, and if you've ever tried copying a substantial portion of the biblical text, even if you're doing it with great caution, you're making one copy, you're going to make mistakes. So why, if, if the scribes were inspired, you know, why am I not? Like, why, what, 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 what would I have to do? Like, you know, like, if I'm a believer, you know, do I have to become a monk to be inspired? Do I have to leave you know, the Baptist faith and become a Roman Catholic or a Greek Orthodox monk in order to be inspired by the spirit to copy the scriptures, except we know that they didn't do like, like what? There's a, where, there's a funny story with that. Um, just Monday, I was down um, somewhere else in Texas looking at a forgery and it's a known forgery. It's acknowledged the people who did it came out and admitted it. Um, it's small. It's only one page and it's about this big. And uh, it's got some text from Romans on it in Greek. They copied it in Greek, and uh, you know, if you know Greek, uh, the word gospel, evangelion, or evangelion, that the ng is two gammas, right? The, when you have two gammas, it makes the ng sound. Well, twice in just this one little piece of paper, the scribe uh, wrote uh, epsilon, upsilon, and then a new, an n before the two gammas because that's the end sound to us. And it, it was a, it was an American who did it and who spoke English natively. Uh, and so even copying, I could tell he copied from an edition of the scriptures. He still managed to mess up that same spelling in the same way twice. Which, and I'll say just to chime in there, and I know we're going to come back kind of these overall arguments. If Matthew five eighteen is promising a perfect transmission where not a single jot or tittle is changed in any link in the chain, then the one thing we can definitively say is that the TR and the King James Bible are not the word of God. <laughs> like that's where that would lead us. Explain that. So in the creation, we'll talk in the next uh, session, in the creation of the TR and in the creation of the King James Bible, whatever type of transmission you have, you don't have perfect every jot and tittle the same at every stage of that process. You just don't. Right. So if we set that up as the standard, that doesn't support the TR and King James Bible. It would demand rejecting them as God's word. And actually the most careful, responsible, knowledgeable defenders of the TR, and you mentioned E.F. Hills, I would put him at the top of the list also. Obviously an intelligent man, you know, uh, had the degrees from Harvard, right, I think, in textual criticism. No slouch. He does not offer through his TR view, perfect, absolute certainty. He calls it maximum certainty. 
And when you look into the details, like you quoted one of you earlier, I want to say it was you, Elijah, I can't remember now. It's already been too long. He acknowledges there are some places where we are uncertain. Whereas at the popular level, and I'm going to include the pastoral level here, what I have always heard my entire life from every King James slash TR defender of every stripe is our view can give you, in the words of um, some proponents that I took down from a, a YouTube video where they were talking about this, we can give you purity, perfection, stability. Whereas the textual confidence view that we hold, they say, well, they, they never arrive at the final text. They're always doing reconstructionist textual criticism. They can't give you an absolutely perfect text. Um, uh, R.B. Ouellette in his book said, anything that comes from human scholarship is going to be uncertain. I'm, I'm mix, messing this up a tiny bit. Um, ironically enough, I'm messing up his quote a tiny bit, but he said... Any so there's not a perfect transmission in his quote, yeah, you're saying? Uh, well, right, yes. Uh -huh. If I remember right, Hills even refers to the work as re restoration. He does. He uses the yeah, word restoration word. and revision. So, so does so Letus. R.B. Willett says we need not the uncertainty provided by human scholarship, which is our position. We have some uncertainty on some, we think, minor things that don't affect the matter uh, and doctrine of the faith. But he says we need an absolute scripture. And I say... If you set that up as a standard, if you're saying that's what Jesus himself is saying, you'd better be able to deliver something that the entire world can know and has warrant to know is the absolutely perfect standard. And it, and it really it really becomes like that 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 gets into, you know, even in Mormonism, you've got the golden tablets and you've got you've got you, you've got this idea um and yet they can't deliver they can't deliver on their promises either. But we, we get this, this idea that we just don't have a trust in God's ability to work with humans, um, like, as humans. Tim, they also tell me, my, my brothers in that world, you know this, you've heard this a million times like I have. Jesus said, you know, man shall not, shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds mm -hmm. out of the mouth of God. So we've got to have every word, Matthew yeah. 4, 4. And I think it's actually Luke 4, 4 also. It is, yeah. That cites that uh, Deuteronomy passage. Deuteronomy 8, 3. Yeah. Why don't you submit to what Jesus said there and take a textual absolutist understanding from Matthew 4, 4? That's a good question. And let me qualify that a little bit to say, I very rarely see, as we sketched out that spectrum earlier, I very rarely see TR defenders use that particular text, but it is very, very common in KJVO, Ruckman, and KJB defending worlds to latch on to Matthew 4, 4, typically entirely apart from its context, and they latch onto that one phrase, every word. Because it fits so well with what we're going to talk about in a minute, their view of the transmission of Scripture and what they believe that they have in the King James Bible. I've got every word, and you've got to have – you'll hear this phrase a lot. You've got to have an every word Bible. You've got to have an every word Bible because Jesus said you need every word. But what they've done is first divorce that text from its context in terms of what's taking place in the passage, and then second, apply it in ways that are just totally invalid. So let me take that first thing first. The The – phrase in both Matthew 4 and Luke 4 comes in Jesus' trial in the wilderness. His temptation with yeah, Satan. Yeah, his temptation with Satan. And there's there's three tests or temptations that are presented there in slightly different order between them. But the, the one at play here is where uh, he's tempted with hunger and Satan says, well, why not just turn these stones to bread? And Jesus' response is this verse, which I'll read here from the King James. Uh, but he answered and said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Just think through that moment. Satan's tempting you. You're hungry. You've been fasting for 40 days. We'll turn these stones to bread. Listen here, Satan. 
Scribes will never make a mistake in copying a single word of the Bible. <laughs> like it doesn't even fit to read the text that way in its context. What he's actually doing, he's appropriating Moses' statement from Deuteronomy chapter 8. And in that context in Deuteronomy 8, what Moses is doing is talking about how God provides manna from heaven. And everything that therefore God gives, that's where men place their reliance. They should depend upon God to give. I can't turn these stones to bread, trusting you, Satan. I'm dependent upon God and what he gives. And the same is true then as the application to scripture as a source of sustenance. The disciples later asked Jesus about hunger and he says, I have meat to eat that you know not of. There's, there's my King James coming out at me. Yeah. I have meat to eat that you know not of. Scripture provides sustenance. But there's nothing there at all that would fit in that context to be a description of perfect verbal transmission. And I just, that just made me, made me think in that passage, right? Satan is, say, Satan is saying, um, you know, Jesus, make bread for yourself, right? This is what you need, Jesus. You need bread, so make bread. And Jesus says, I'm going to trust what God has actually done. Right. What I see is stones, and that means it's time for me to not eat right now. Right. That's what we want to say. Oh, that's about, good. That's what we want to say about this whole thing. Like, what has God actually given us? Well, he's, we're going to talk about that in one of the later sessions. He's given us manuscripts that have differences. So what are we going to do with those? Yeah. Right? Yeah. We're not going to turn them into, you know, we're not going to turn them into something they're not. We're not going to turn stones into bread. We're going to trust God. And that's what we want people to do. Exactly. We want people to be satisfied with what God gives because God's plans, his ways are better than our ways. That's right. Even when we wish he would do something different. And if he says it's bread, we're not going to say it's a stone and turn over. Exactly. <laughs> right. Exactly. If, if, right. God's, if God says, this is what I've given you for bread, we're not going to complain about the manna. Yeah. We're yeah. going to take it the way God gave it. And we're going to do whatever work you do with manna, right? We're going to say, right. what do you do with this? Well, you can, you can boil it. You can broil it. You can, you can do all the things they did with <laughs> manna, right? We're not going to say, you know, we're going to do something radically different with it, we're, gonna, we're going to accept the givenness of what we've right. been given. We don't look at God and say, no, I want my bread because that's what Matthew 4, 4 promised me. <laughs> right, exactly. Give me my every word perfect King James Bible. And let me say one other thing there too. That phrase, every word, as it occurs in this text, and uh, at least in the King James translation of the Hebrew Old Testament text, I don't, I don't think it's nearly as explicit in the Hebrew text, but it, it's really not referring to a single unit of speech, like we think of a word made up of letters. That, that's not the idea here. The idea is every saying, every message, every everything that God said, there, there's just no way to read that as zoning in on every single word made up of letters being perfectly given to me. And in fact, Jesus, if you're going to insist on every word accuracy, misquotes it. He says, mm -hmm. man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. But in Deuteronomy, it says man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Yahweh. Yeah. So, so he's changed a word. <laughs> yeah, he's changed a word. He changed the Bible. Do that. Right. Elijah, you've had a twinkle in your eye for some time. And we yeah, whenever that. I met with this, the the comment that I like to make was, well, so what did Jesus say to Mary on her 26th birthday? Because Jesus was God, right? And that was a word that proceeded mm. out of the mouth of God. Mm. So yeah. why don't we know that? You know? Yeah. If if that means every word that comes out of the mouth of God, then we need to know, in a literal sense, we need to know every word Jesus ever spoke. Yeah. Ever. Right. Which well, and I, I do and think most of them. Back, oh, so, no. I was going to say most who use the text, they would restrict it specifically to the canon. But then you've got that third problem. If there's that first problem of context, the second of what the phrase means, there's a third problem that if you define that to mean every word that God ever put in the canon, every Christian needs to live. 
and you identify the TR or the King James Bible as that, no one ever had the canon before 1611. And a and lot of people don't lived. have the canon now. And a lot of people in the world don't have the canon now. There's just there's no real exegetically legitimate way to do that with that text. Yeah, even the TR as it's used in King James onlyism did not exist in that specific form until 1881. That's right. Which is such a sad irony because that's what they say about the textual confidence yeah. view. They say you think that we didn't get God's word until 1881 when Westcott and Hort gave it. <laughs> Matthew 24:35 though, Tim. Heaven and earth will pass away, mm. but my words will not pass away. Good. And, and I'll say up front, I think this is a text that's more legitimately used this way than Matthew 4.4. 4. So this comes in the context of the great Olivet Discourse, Matthew 13, Luke 22, uh, or 21, and then Matthew 24. And it comes in the same section in all three of the synoptic gospels where Jesus is telling the parable of the fig tree and giving this uh, – promise that this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. And I can just say up front, I am not going to explain for everyone and settle all the controversies about what this particular phrase means. It's very possibly the most debated clause in all of the Gospels in terms of its interpretation. Uh, but what I do want to do is zone in on this verse 34. Verily I say unto you, heaven and earth shall not pass away till all these things, or verse 35 then, till all these things be fulfilled. Verse 35, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. So setting aside for just a moment all the complex interpretive questions about this generation and what it means that this generation won't pass, we can see that what Jesus, broadly speaking in this parable, is talking about is his prophecies and promises being fulfilled, right? The very word that comes before verse 35 is, till all these things be fulfilled. So at the outset, if we're asking the question, is this text about perfect verbal transmission of the text in preservation, or is it about God's ability to always fulfill his promises? The context seems clearly to weigh really heavily on the side of what Jesus is talking about is the fulfillment of his promises and the way that God will never let any of his promises, like the Old Testament prophets would talk about, I've let none of God's words fall to the ground. I've let none of them pass. What they're saying is God did everything he promised to do. And that's the same for Matthew 5, 17. That's exactly the same kind of context. And so our brothers in the, on, the, on the textual absolutist side will say, so how can you say that God will perfectly fulfill his promises if we don't know what they are? How would you yeah. guys respond to that? First off, I think there's a legitimate form of that argument where you can say it makes sense to believe that God has preserved his word in some sense. Because if he inspired it, and if it's going to come to pass, then we should have some access to it. Feinberg makes that move in his chapter, and I think it's legitimate. He actually has a paragraph where he talks about how it's misused by KJV onlyist. But that's a legitimate argument to say, even if this text isn't directly teaching preservation, and I don't think it is, we can infer a preservation of Scripture from it. I'm comfortable saying that. I'm very comfortable speaking today, and this is just a little story. When I first began to study these texts, I gave up on the doctrine of preservation. Like I went through every one of these texts, every one of uh, 70 texts that had sometimes been alleged to me as teaching that the KJV was perfectly preserved. I did in depth. Sometimes in my preaching, I was preaching through the Sermon on the Mount. When I came to that one, I preached through Psalm, the section where I came to Psalms 12. And after doing that, while I was in grad school at Heartland, I just came to the conviction none of these texts teach preservation. Now, at that time, I still thought, well, I still believe the TR is perfect, but I have to admit none of these texts directly teach it. And I actually went too far at that time. At that time, I just rejected the doctrine of preservation. I've come in years since to realize there's a legitimate way to get to preservation. And it's the argument you just mentioned that if God has inspired the text and he is going to fulfill it, there seems to be some, there, there seems to be good gods to say that God's people should have access to it. But we need to care, be careful to recognize that inferring that from what we think 
should come as a result of what God's done doesn't have the same kind of authority as saying Jesus directly taught a perfect transmission of the text. Yeah, and I think there's a really important distinction you made there, Tim, that like there are lots of inferences that we should hold, but an inference from the text is not sufficient to override the revelation from God's general revelation. Mm. Oh, so when, when the Bible says God created the heavens and the earth, I believe that, and I believe that no matter what evidence you're going to throw at me, you know, I, I'm going to believe what Genesis says, right? Um, but my inferences from the text, the things that go beyond what the text says, yeah. I, are subject to revision based on what is actually out there in God's world. Right. And so we want to say, we want to infer, I, I think all of us would hold to some, some form of preservation, say, yes, God has preserved the text. We can infer that from the text, but because we don't get to define for ourselves what that preservation looks like, we look to what has God actually right. done in the world. You know, so we can so we can say, you know, God created everything that is, so therefore God created the horse. Right. Um, but you know, we can't infer from that how many legs a horse has. We have to actually go out and look at a horse and say, Oh, a horse has four legs, right? We're not gonna infer that from some previous definition of right. creation. We're gonna actually know about horses by looking at horses and the same thing. We're going to say, you know. God gave the text and we're inferring preservation. Therefore, it's reasonable to say that God preserved it. What's that preservation looks like? Yeah. We're going to go out and look at manuscripts. Right. Well, and let me- Sorry, that took us a little bit. No, you're fine. That's actually a perfect point to chime in and say something else. I, I think one way that we could sketch out broadly these three views as we're talking about general revelation and special revelation, or we could talk about God's revelation in his word and his revelation in his world. In one very real sense, textual absolutism is clinging firmly to God's revelation in his word but not really sufficiently wrestling with his revelation in the world. And textual skepticism, on the other hand, is working with history and what we can look at history and see God's done. They wouldn't frame it this way, but they're wrestling with God's revelation in his world, but totally discounting God's revelation in his word. What we want to aim for in textual confidence is bringing both of those together and say, I'm committed to the fact that God's never wrong when he speaks. So what he says in his word has to match up with what he says in his world. And if I'm left only with inference from what he said in his word, whatever I come up with as an inference can't contradict what he's done in history in his world. We want to hold both word and Absolutely. world together. That's so good. You can, you can plausibly infer from that statement somewhere in poetic portions of the Old Testament, the, the four corners of the earth, that the, that the world right. is flat. And there are Christians, and I do know one I King know James so. Elias who holds that very view. Uh, and the reason we say that's not true is, is both that even if you don't have access to the astronomical tools that we have, you should be able to recognize when any language is using metaphor and metaphor is shot through all language, certainly English. Uh, and also, that's doubly confirmed when you actually do get to look at the evidence from general revelation. What is the world actually like? Now, Peter, will you please bring out Richard Brash's book and flash it before any cameras present? It's called, what is it, the title? How God Preserved the, A Christian's Pocket Guide to How God Preserved the Bible by Richard Brash, published by Christian Focus, and available very inexpensively. Yeah, we're not selling it. You get it from wherever you yeah. get your uh, we, books. We are not selling it. We, we are selling yeah. nothing. Um, and we're not selling these awesome exclusive mugs either. These are have ours. Mine. Yeah. So, Elijah, you tell us, though, the story similar to Tim of your interactions with Richard about preservation. Yeah, so I, when I grew up, um, the only options that I understood about preservation 
were preservation in terms of the King James TR or rejecting the doctrine altogether. Um, and so at some point I just said, I, you know, I'm bound to scripture. I'm not bound to a confession. Like ultimately I'm bound to scripture. And I just don't, I don't believe that God preserved his word like that. Um, I just gave up on the doctrine of preservation. And I held that uh, on into my PhD studies. Richard and I were both students in Edinburgh at the same time. So I knew him in person. Um, and I can't remember if myths and mistakes in New Testament textual criticism had come out yet, um, but he at least knew that we were working on it if it hadn't already been published. And I remember, I remember where I was at. I was on a, a trip taking a one-week class uh, somewhere else, and he uh, contacted me and said, can you read through my book because I don't want to make any myths and mistakes. It's on God's preservation. And I, and I emailed him back, and I said kind of grumpily, I mean, yeah, I'll do it, but, you know, I, you're, I, you're wrong. I, I don't believe in God's be preservation. Grumpy, Elijah? Come again? You can be grumpy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Very grumpy. Yeah. Um, and so I remember reading it in my breaks, like during class on, on my computer and typing up notes. And the first several pages, there were kind of really grumpy notes about like this and that. And then by the end of the book, I just realized Richard's absolutely right. I've been wrong about this. There's another way to look at preservation and he's convinced me. And so I emailed him back my notes and I said, I'm so sorry, but like, I'm going to admit, I started this with a really bad attitude, uh, but I was wrong. And you absolutely convinced me on this. Um, God has preserved his word. He has done that. And I really want to pick up on what Brash said. I just wanted to give you a chance to tell that story right after Tim uh, talked. And then we got going on other things. I want to uh, bracket that for a second. What is that view? How can you have preservation without absolutism? I want to save that for the end. And I want you guys to help me understand because this is something I actually kind of tend to forget. What is it that my brothers in that textual absolutist world say about the two streams hypothesis? Because in the textual, textual absolutist world, the way to account for any texts that disagree with the perfect one is to say they're all corrupt, they're all Typically, they say they're all part of this other stream, the corrupt stream that goes back to Alexandria, etc. Can you lay out that argument, especially Tim and Peter, and tell me why you don't accept it? Yeah. So very, very common in those that are defending the King James Bible or the TR is this presentation that wants to divide all Bibles, all manuscripts, all text and editions as fitting very neatly and cleanly into just two streams of transmission the corrupt stream and the pure stream. And the, probably the first expression historically of that uh, came in uh, Wilkinson's book in 1930. And he had a, just a simple short little chart where he divided Antioch and Alexandria. And he talked about two streams through both. The apostles writing from Antioch give us the pure word of God. Apostates writing from Alexandria give us the corrupt word of God. The apostles, uh, their line comes through the received text, the Waldensian Bible, Erasmus, Luther, Tyndale, and ultimately into the King James. The apostates comes through Sinaiticus and Vaticanus, Vulgate, the Vaticanus uh, Greek text, and then Horton Westcott lands there. And there's this temptation or tendency in a lot of this literature to use this simplistic understanding of transmission 
and this simplistic way of dividing all Bibles as pure or corrupt. And what happens a lot, not, not all of them are guilty of this, but what happens a lot is then they'll proof text passages from the Bible to talk about how Antioch's really good in the Bible. Christians were first called Christians in Antioch. Alexandria's Egypt. What does Egypt mean in the Bible? Sin coming out of the world. I mean, that sounds so crazy to say that, but there are a lot of people that write. You're not out straw manning. I'm not. Out of, out of Egypt, I <laughs> called my son. Exactly. Yeah. He got him out of there. But, but, right. Well, you got to get him out of that okay. world. Got to get him out of the sin. And and so then it appeals to that kind of emotional, well, I can tell in the Bible Antioch's good, and I can tell that Alexandria's bad, so therefore I want an Antiochian Bible, and I don't want an Alexandrian Bible, and the only Antioch Bible and is— And I, I think it, especially at the popular level, this is where this is where it's at. Yeah. This is what people buy into. It is. In, in terms of— Because it has so known. much emotional force. Oh, yeah, and it seems so simple. It's like It's easy this, to understand. It's this easy-to-understand theory. It's easy to chart. It's easy to chart. <laughs> The problem is it's completely wrong. Yeah. Like, and it, it's, it's difficult to state how completely wrong it is. But try. starting Okay, I'll, I'll try. Uh, so let's start with the history. Um, Alexandria is the bastion of orthodoxy <laughs> in the early church. Um, there's anti, uh, Athanasius of Alexandria, who almost, not single-handedly completely, but almost single-handedly defends the Trinity against, you know, so that Athanasius contra mundum, Athanasius against the world, um, is not quite accurate, but it's pretty close that <clears throat> almost all of the other bishoprics uh, in the fourth century are going along with compromises with Arianism, and Athanasius is like, no, we are not bending. The church stands or falls on this. We are going to hold fast to the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, and, and it's really, you know, and whereas so many teachers from Antioch get condemned as heretics, not all fairly. Not all justly, um, but if you were to go back to the fourth century, the time when these codices are being, you know, if, if we were to look back from the perspective of what we would say is Orthodox theology today, and we're to go back to the fourth century when these codices are being done, where do you want your Bible to come from? It would be Alexandria 100% of the way. Right. That's the bastion of Orthodoxy on the deity, on the deity of Christ. Yeah. Right? That's the place with a high view of Christ's divinity. Now, you know, are there some false teachers that come from from Alexandria, you know, well, one of the sure. craziest things is Arius calls himself a student of Lucian of Antioch. The Arian heresy is a import from Antioch to yeah. Alexandria. Now, I don't think that we should therefore condemn Antioch, no. right? I don't think there's anything to that kind of reasoning at sure, all. Sure. But no. if you're actually going to apply that consistently, it's backwards. It's yeah. backwards historically. Right, right. That's the first problem. The second problem is there's no real reason to associate the Alexandrian text with Alexandria. The fact is we don't know where most of our major codices come from. One of the few that is uh, one of the highest ranked, you know, sort of manuscripts uh, is Minuscule 1739. Um, that is one of the closest to say the Nestle Alon text. We do know where that one's copied. It's copied in Constantinople, also known as Byzantium, right? So we know the scribe's name. Even. We, know, we know his name, right? His name was Ephraim. Uh, he worked in the 950s, I think, and we have several manuscripts that he copied. He was unbelievably careful, um, just a wonderful, wonderful scribe. We can match up his handwriting, and he did other little things like placing crosses at certain points on the page that we can So the, so the first problem with that theory is historically it gets the, the orthodoxy wrong. Right. It gets the church history wrong. The second problem is we don't know where these early codices comes from, so it's really arbitrary to assign them to Alexandria. The third problem 
is that the textual tradition just isn't divided into two right. streams. So, so let's right. talk about that. And this is where we have some experts in the room. But I actually want to start with the person who told me he isn't as much of the expert as the experts. So let me just make that clear. Elijah Hickson has major training in textual criticism. Peter Montoro is doing the same thing. But I'm directing this to Tim, who's a little bit more of a generalist, although you've certainly done your work in textual criticism. We have a mutual friend mm -hmm. in King James Onlyism, Brian Ross. He, to my mind, is at the top of people with whom I feel I can have a conversation across that divide. Yeah. I feel, again, with like with Chuck Surratt, there's this honesty and, frankly, charity with him. Um, I respect him. And he has himself complained about the two-streams hypothesis. What argument has he given? I think along the lines that Peter is saying, yeah. it, does, it doesn't work with the actual text. That's right. I'll mention his earlier book, The King James Bible in America. He doesn't go into it a whole lot here. I think there's a paragraph two or two there. Uh, but he does have a series of lectures that he gave where he dug into this view. And he believed it. He was raised with it, taught it his whole life. And as he sat down and studied the history, he said that he sees at least two big problems with it. First, on the one hand, as Peter just mentioned, it's bad history. It's just really Ross is a historian. History. Yeah, he's an excellent historian. historian. He's doing good historical work. And this idea, first off, that all the members of these chains are identical is just bad history. You look at the members that are listed in these charts, and you can find these charts everywhere online in right. all kinds of literature uh, promoting the King James. But if you take any one of the elements in those chart and compare it against the King James, it's not identical. Like there's just th this idea of perfect transmission in two streams is literally just it's a unicorn. It's a myth. It does not exist except on those charts. The second thing that he points out that is a problem from his perspective, he's a KJB and a TR defender. He says this undermines our defense of the King James Bible because in every single one of these charts, they put the old Latin text in the good pure stream and the Latin Vulgate text in the corrupt stream. But the King James Bible has been heavily influenced by the Latin Vulgate, both in terms of the Byzantine manuscripts, Erasmus's incorporation of Latin Vulgate readings, the King James translators directly using the rhymes Douay translation and incorporating readings from it. So if you put the Latin Vulgate in a corrupt stream of manuscripts, you've actually condemned the King James Bible. And I'm using his argument. I don't agree with his position, but he's a responsible enough historian who defends the King James Bible that recognizes this super popular, super common, super widespread argument is historically bad and ultimately would undermine, if carried to its conclusion, right. would undermine authority in the King James so, Bible. So not every proponent of textual absolutism um, accepts the two streams hypothesis. Right. So like Hills and Letus, where were they on this? Yeah, so Hills and Letus are in, a, in, in some ways in an entirely separate category. And I will freely admit that Hills gets misunderstood. Maybe that was his own fault. Maybe it's the fault of readers. But they tend to read him and kind of think that he agrees with this. He has a chart where he lays out three streams along the lines of how textual criticism thought in that day, the Byzantine manuscripts, the Alexandrian manuscripts, the Western manuscripts. But when it comes to actually tracing the transmission of the text, he doesn't claim all the witnesses line up in a perfect line and are perfectly identical. He freely acknowledges that they're different. When he gets to talking about Erasmus, he freely acknowledges, I'll just read a few quotes from him, or, or let me talk about, as he talks about the manuscripts, he says, the Byzantine manuscripts agree with one another closely enough to justify that they have essentially the same text, but not so closely as to, and he goes on to say, well, they don't collude. He's freely acknowledging that even the Byzantine manuscripts don't verbally agree with each other, let alone the Byzantine with all the other things in these line. So when he comes to the TR, he's not claiming that the TR is a perfect 
transcription of Byzantine manuscripts that have stood in this long line of history, he's instead claiming that God guided Erasmus to edit, correct, purify. and change the TR to purify, including he freely acknowledges that Erasmus incorporates Latin Vulgate readings. So from Hill's perspective, some of God's word was preserved in the Byzantine manuscripts. Some of it existed nowhere except the Latin Vulgate. And we had to wait until Erasmus, where God guided Erasmus to bring those Latin Vulgate readings into the text. Without Erasmus being aware. Without Erasmus being aware of it. And he says this, hence the formation of the Textus Receptus was God-guided. The Textus Receptus, therefore, is the trusty, re repro trustworthy reproduction of the infallibly inspired original New Testament text. And he says, in the Textus Receptus, God corrected the few mistakes of any consequence which yet remained in the traditional New Testament text of the majority of Greek manuscripts. So he doesn't fit in this two streams view because he knew it's bad history. But he still upholds that the TR is the perfect text. And what he's really claiming is divinely guided restoration. Restorationist textual criticism. He is. They use that slur against us, but that's what Hills was advocating if you lead him, if you listen to him closely. Yeah, his doctoral work was on one of the groupings of manuscripts that is neither Alexandrian nor um, yeah, the Byzantine. Yeah. And it's today still debated as to, to where uh, whether or not that is its own group or if it's and I think that's readings. I think that's that goes back to, you know, the fact that the more we are able to look at lots and lots of manuscripts, the more we can see um, that text critics today don't really speak about text types. Uh, they speak about textual clusters, that there are some manuscripts. Yeah, and the reason why the Byzantine manuscripts agree is because they all come from the same time and they all come from the same place. But they don't all agree, though. Like no, they, they, they don't agree. Thing. You, can, yeah. you can have clusters of close-knit groups within the Byzantine right. tradition right. that can tell you that these are not like these over here. Right, exactly. So there, there is actually, the Byzantine manuscripts have never been comprehensively collated. Uh, and well, in, in certain passages, yeah, they have. in certain, yeah, there's about four passages where they have, right. But in terms of the whole, the whole spectrum of the text, there's no like addition that gives you all the variants uh, of the Byzantine, sort of the Byzantine manuscripts. But you have like these different, you know, the reason why the older manuscripts differ more is because Greek was spoken in a lot more places. So you have manuscripts that are copied in this place, in this place, in this place, in this place. Later on, you get a very small group of people in one place copying manuscripts. So it is not at all surprising that those manuscripts are more similar to one another sure. than they are to manuscripts that are copied a whole bunch of places. I think there's another aspect to that too is uh, later on you get more scribal professionalism. and right. you, oh, yeah. Like you have people who are more careful scribes later on who are very slow and meticulous as opposed to earlier on when you you can kind of think of an, a missionary type situation. Right. Right. We exactly. need to get the text. We need to get God's word out to people. You know, copy it. Including into not so careful translation sometimes as that right. spreads out. So, guys, how do we preserve preservation? You accept a doctrine of preservation. Actually, I have a very similar history that I rejected it as a doctrine, even though I felt it was still largely true. We still do have a well-preserved Bible. I just didn't think the Bible taught it. And I've come around too, much, much as you have done. Let's describe that. How do you have preservation without absolutism? I think it comes down to the providence of God. And an analogy that I like to use um, is I believe the gospel is perfect. I believe it's God's gospel that saves souls, that is inspired by God, that is, that is, that is absolutely perfect. And yet I have never preached the gospel perfectly. And all of us have preached, all of us have preached the gospel. None of us have preached it perfectly. And no mere human being 
ever has preached the gospel perfectly, you know, unless they're preaching under divine inspiration. And yet we believe the gospel is the gospel, even when it, a non-inspired person is preaching. And we believe the spirit is still at work through that gospel. But we don't say because the spirit works through the gospel that therefore we can never get the gospel wrong. Because the fact is in our preaching, all of us have made mistakes. Um, sometimes we've had to go back and correct what we said. We've had to say, I, I used to think the text said this, and I've now come to a better understanding, right? So there's room for correction. There's even room for people getting things radically wrong and saying, okay, you have now stepped outside the bounds. You've changed the gospel. You know, so I'd say that to someone like, like Joel Osteen, that you've changed the gospel so much that what you are, what you are preaching is no longer the gospel that's found in scripture. You're not just, you know, speaking out of turn, you're speaking contrary to the text. Um, and so there needs to be a, a, you know, or you go back to the Reformation where Luther is like, no, what, what you're telling people with this matter of indulgences is contrary to the gospel of grace that's found in the scriptures. Uh, and, so, and yet it's not just God hasn't left us to ourselves in the preaching of the gospel. God's spirit is at work to bring about correction um, when correction is needed. And we should have that heart that wants to learn you know, learn the biblical languages, learn how to do exegesis, learn how to do it so we can get it as accurate as possible. But I don't say, when I preach the gospel, I don't say, trust in me because I get everything right. I say, trust in God because he's worthy of your trust. Don't look to me. Um, and yet I'm still doing the work. And so that's really that idea that I trust that God has preserved the text. Um, but yet if I, you know, I trust God has, has preserved the gospel, but if I want to preach the gospel, I'm going to look at the text. I'm going to use good commentaries. I'm going to use good systematic theologies and good confessions of faith. And I'm going to do my best to get things right. Um, but my trust at the end of the day isn't in my, my work. It's in God's providence um, who works through the messiness of ordinary humans. And that's the, the, the model of preservation that we want to point people to. We want to point people to the fact that trust God. Right. Um, so you're not get telling, to work. So at the end yeah. of the day, you're saying in our preaching of the gospel, we shouldn't put our trust in our abilities as a messenger, but in yes. God's ability to speak. And likewise, as we approach preservation, we shouldn't put our trust in our ability to have a perfect copy or a perfect translation, but in God's ability to speak. And yeah. and I would say to the person in the pew, like not everyone has to become a textual critic. Like I expect the members of the church to trust what I say unless I give them reason otherwise. Uh, and yet it may be that sometime I have to correct myself or someone else comes and they preach something and, and, and it becomes clear that, you know, they learn something new, right? But it's not like we should have this skeptical attitude towards human messengers. We should have a basic attitude of trust, but a correctability. As, as a text critic, I am not, I'm not strong enough to mess up God's word. Mm, exactly. I'm not yeah, yes. exactly. powerful enough to get in his way. Right. Let's try to land this, bring this plane toward the runway by bringing in Brash and Feinberg, who are the two figures that just among ourselves we found have stated this doctrine of preservation in a way that avoids both textual skepticism and textual absolutism. Yeah. Peter? The providential preservation of Scripture is the doctrine that accounts for the endurance for us of such a useful and necessary book as the Bible. According to the doctrine, preservation isn't some magical quality of the written text like a scroll in Harry Potter written in indelible ink. Rather, preservation, like inspiration and illumination, is something God does. God, who breathed out his word and ensured that it was written down for us, will likewise ensure that it is preserved for us. Right. God builds, God gives us the gospel 
through the work of, of, of human messengers. Mm -hmm. God builds his church through ordinary proclamation right. and ordinary one anothering that when, you know, me and another member of the church, when we get on each other's nerves and, and we have something ought with each other, and then we sort that out according to the teachings of scripture, that is the living stones of the new Jerusalem right. being reshaped. Mm. That's what, that's how God works. That's how God told us that he works. Yeah. So rather than ignoring what scripture tells us about how God works and setting up our own model of how we would act if we were God, we need to just trust what God says. Right. How about, well, how about Feinberg, Tim? Just before Feinberg, sure. let me say one more word about what Brash says there. I love his uh, uh, analogy to like a Harry Potter spell. If you think about um, in kind of the lore of spells, you've got these Latin manuscripts written out exactly right. And if you rip off one corner and you try to pronounce it, the spell doesn't work, right? Like there's only power if you've got it exactly right. Yeah, but and, it's a con like ancient magic. That's a real concept yeah, that we can learn right. in history. And, and a lot of people have taken that type of a view towards the text of Scripture. In fact, I would say that's uh, at its core. The textual absolutist approach to Scripture is I've got to have it all exactly right or it's like a missing part of the spell and it just lost its power. But Brash is saying the Bible's bigger and stronger and more powerful than a Harry Potter spell. And having some <laughs> minor changes in transmission and some slight uncertainties about the text doesn't rob it of its authority to speak the word of God. Like it's just stronger. It's than like that. God actually knows how us humans operate. <laughs> right. And so it's like, you know, you have a radio signal that you have redundancy built into it. So the message can get through even when some of it may drop out. Yes. Um, so actually just like, you know, a radio operator is going to know how radio works. Uh, God may just know how humans work. <laughs> just and, might. And maybe he just gave us the word of God in a way that works for humans um, so that we don't have to be God to hear from God. Yeah. Because of time and because of lunch, let me forego reading directly what Feinberg says, but let me ask you this, guys. Would it be accurate to say that Feinberg and Brash and those who hold a view of preservation that we accept, a textual confidence view, are in general saying that the words of God, all the jots and tittles, have been preserved by the manuscript tradition? Okay, that that's the simple summary of it all. And I want to make one more little point before we totally land this plane. And that is actually the most responsible TR defenders are saying the same thing right now. One of them has recently said there's a macro TR, um, basically all of the TR editions. If you take them together, all of the ones that count that he actually likes, the classic mature Protestant editions, he says, um, they preserve um, the, the word of God. He doesn't actually point to one specific one. Even Hills and some of the, and Letus and some of these other leaders in that area, they they can get pretty charry when you get to the stage of well, tell me which one is the perfect one because they they know too much. They cannot say Scrivener is the perfect one. We'll get more into that. So I've tried to build a bridge between the two groups, the absolutists and the, the textual confidence folks, which is us, and say actually you're kind of saying the same thing. You shouldn't be consigning us to the fires of an incorrupt Bible. Uh, or, or a corrupt Bible um, because of these viewpoints, because we're actually saying something similar. We'll get more into that. So let's summarize where we've been up to this point. We talked about textual confidence offering a better way forward than, than textual absolutism, and certainly than textual skepticism. We've uh, brought up, I really like what Peter says often about toil and trust, that's because of God's providence as an evangelism, actually, that we can work with confidence in textual criticism. And now in sessions five and six, what are we going to do, Peter? Well, in sessions five and six, we're going to get into the details of what this toil looks like. So Elijah and I are going to talk about what manuscripts are, 
and we're going to talk about what text codecs actually do. And we can't give all the details, but we're trying to give you a taste of what the, the nitty gritty toil of getting into, as it's been put, the coal mine of textual criticism looks like. And then uh, in session six, we're going to give some of the history of this work has been ongoing throughout all the centuries. The idea that Westcott and Hort came up with a brand new idea is just wrong. Um, and the work is still ongoing um, today. Uh, and then, but before we get into that, before we get into uh, the coal mine, we want to just zoom out in the fourth session, the center session, the center of all that we're doing. We want to talk about uh, what the TR, uh, how the TR actually came to be, how the King James Bible actually came to be, uh, because really the, the, the big thing we're doing here is we're trying to say, let's stand in the trajectory that was set by Erasmus and the King James translators. Let's not, let, let's not, um, you know, like we wouldn't, we wouldn't want to take the church planners of 50 years ago and say they started all the churches that are needed. We want to actually say, what did they do? And then we want to learn from them, learn from their mistakes, perhaps. But we want to fundamentally do in our day what they did in theirs. And, and that's what we want to do in this area of textual confidence as well. We want to do in our day what Tyndale did in his, what Erasmus did in his, learning from their mistakes, um, but fundamentally standing on their shoulders. Uh, and it's because of the work that they did that we can stand on the shoulders of giants and continue the work that they began. So in the next exciting episode, the story of the Texas Receptus and the King James Version. Thank you for listening to the Textual Confidence Collective. You can find this podcast on Dr. Mark Ward's YouTube channel and anywhere else you find audio podcasts. Be sure to visit our website, www.textualconfidence.com. Thank you.